You're listening to What She Said with Candace Sampson, a podcast for Canadian women about Canadian women. A mansplaining free zone, What She Said is here to empower, educate, and entertain you. Today, we're taking a closer look at menopause. When I first started experiencing hot flashes, I went to Facebook, as one does, to ask my hive what they did to manage their symptoms. I received over 108 comments, and the obvious consensus was there was no consensus. In fact, the more I tried to understand menopause, the more confusing it became. Should I take hormones? Would they cause cancer? Was I developing early-onset Alzheimer's or was putting the milk in the cupboard totally normal? How long was this fiery hell going to last? I called my family doctor to discuss, and she recommended I read the Menopause Manifesto as it was currently sitting on her bedside table. It was a game-changer. As with most things in life, there is power that comes with knowledge, especially when it comes to our health. Dr. Jen Gunter has become the de facto leader of feminist women in menopause who are tired of medical misogyny and the there, there, dear attitude we so often receive. Dr. Gunter joined me to discuss everything from why feminism is such an integral part of the menopause conversation, the latest on hormones, and even a bit of a trip down memory lane for the Canadian who lives in California. Welcome to What She Said, Dr. Gunter. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I only have 30 minutes with you, and I have never felt more pressure to deliver for my audience than I do right now. So I'm not even going to take you out for dinner. I'm going to jump right in. (laughs) All right, let's get to it. Why is feminism such an integral part of the conversation around menopause? Well, I think feminism is an important part of the conversation around menopause because, you know, menopause has been weaponized against women since the beginning of time. I mean, it's sort of been uh, viewed as sort of an aging out of relevance, which is, of course, ridiculous uh, because that's just a patriarchal notion. But I think this idea that a woman's worth ends with her reproductive capability is, you know, is incredibly patriarchal. And, you know, this feminist menopause, it doesn't accept, you know, that... um, that shoddy hypothesis, uh, because one, it's incorrect, but two, it's incredibly damaging. One of the things I loved in the menopause manifesto was that you pointed out these differences so clearly. We don't talk about men in the same way as they age, uh, and they experience things like erectile dysfunction. And, and, you know, uh, you mentioned penis shrinkage, which made, made me laugh. Nobody's talking about that. Right, exactly. I mean, imagine if we spoke about men's bodies in the same way we spoke about women's bodies, right? So, you know, why, why do we even have to use the word menopause? I mean, it's ridiculous to tie, you know, a whole description of, you know, almost half my life to my menstrual period. We don't tie a description of men's lives to their reproductive cycles, you know, so are their, you know, their reproduction. Yeah. I mean, we should say that men are in erectopause when they're in erectile dysfunction. So, you know, I think it's, it's just important whenever you hear something thing, you just think to yourself, would we speak about a man's body that way? You mentioned something just in here, you said, you know, more than half of our life or, you know, uh, and you talk about this in the book in sort of this pre-menopause, menopause, menopause post-menopause. And 
I think about, I did not know this about menopause. And I feel like I was strangely unprepared for this time in my life, considering how much time it sucks up. So when should we be teaching this with, you know, when we're teaching about puberty, should it be later on in the education cycle? The the reality is women just don't know enough about it. Well, I think that, the, you know, your experience is very common. You're sort of entering into the menopause transition and knowing nothing about it. I mean, imagine if you entered into pregnancy, knowing as much about pregnancy as you do about menopause, right? Like you'd be like, why is this thing growing in my belly? What is going on here? So I think we should be teaching about menopause when we teach about puberty. We should be normalizing it because the problem is, is if you don't talk about it early, then the implication is, is that it's bad or it's, it's depressing or it's reflecting something that, you know, that makes you of lesser value. And I think it's important that we teach reproductive biology so people don't view this as aging out, but rather the natural process, you know, in the same way puberty is a natural process. It's funny. I think back on my, my education and it was very much, you know, here you're going to menstruate and this is what this is going to be like. And then you're going to have a baby and this is what this looks like. And then that's it. That was it. There was nothing more after that. (laughs) So, and that is a result of the patriarchy, patriarchy really. And what we're teaching in the schools is that there's sort of nothing beyond your childbearing years. Well, I think it's not even that. I think it's even worse. I think it's basically, we don't teach reproductive biology. We teach pregnancy avoidance and pregnancy value. So we say you have to not get pregnant because you have to be a good girl. I mean, that's the implication, right? Is that, um, is that if you have sex before marriage, you're a bad girl. And if, but then once you are decide to, to be married and have sex, then, you know, your, your job is a breeder. And that's it. So I think we, you know, we teach basically, um, you know, a restrictive breeding philosophy. We don't teach reproductive biology. And I think it's really important that we take all those sort of social, those harmful social constructs, constructs out of it and just teach people how things work. I mean, we should be approaching it the same way we teach driver's ed. I imagine that when you were in medical school and and, and learning uh, all of these things, you weren't exactly looking at it through the lens you are now. So was there a flashpoint or a moment where you went, whoa, wait a minute, we're doing this wrong. We have too much medical misogyny, too much uh, you know, medical mansplaining uh, going on. Was there a moment where you started to see the connections? Well, I, you know, it's always interesting because when you're a doctor, you talk about this all the time. So you're sort of unaware that people like don't really know about menopause because I talk talk about menopause with my patients every day, right? So, um, but I I hadn't appreciated that it had the same, I would say, weight or even a greater weight than, you know, I was aware of all of the vaginal shame and vulvar shame, uh, but I wasn't aware that menopause really carried that same shame until actually I went on tour for the Vagina Bible. And, you know, this was back in the day when you could actually have people come to, you know, book talks and things. And, you know, creating a space to talk about the vulva and vagina created a space for people to talk about menopause. You know, people realized it was a safe space and the questions about menopause just came fast and furious. And, you know, at that point I was a, you know, a year or so or two years, you know, know, well into my menopause. And I was like, whoa, I, I was a bit of a moment for me to realize that actually, you know, as much, you know, that, that the vulva and vagina were worthy of shame and the menopause was so awful that it wasn't even worthy of that. It was just complete dismissal. 
And so I just thought, wow, you know, I guess that's the next book. (laughs) So when you started experiencing perimenopause symptoms, uh, did you have moments that surprised you considering you've literally written the book now on menopause? Like, have you had those moments? Uh, well, when I went through, so I went through my menopause, you know, I, my, my last period was probably like five years ago, five or you know, five, five years ago or so. And so, you know, I was well past menopause writing the book, but um, so I would say I was, I would, the only thing that really took me aback uh, was how a hot flush actually feels that, that your head, like it's all in your head, like it's in your head. I don't mean like it's in your head. You're making it up. Like, like the physiologic feeling is so much upper body and it really is like a wave and your it feels like, like there's a heat, you know, blast coming out of the top of your head. So I was, I was unprepared for what that actually felt like. I I'm, I'm nodding my head in agreement here. Um, I was having 20 to 30 hot flashes a day. And in reading your book, you literally mentioned 20 to 30, which made me laugh because that makes me a super flusher, flasher. Yeah, super (laughs) flusher. Yeah, exactly. And I was struggling with, do I take hormones? Because I was scared to take them Mm -hmm. because there is so much um, confusion in and around that. And for me, it just became this point of, I need quality of life. I'm not, you know, I'm, I was getting really miserable. So I started mm-hmm. taking estrogen, the hot flashes or flushes or hot bloom, as you called it, uh, mm-hmm. has, has um, get, become less. But so why, you know, for women who are thinking about hormone replacement therapy, um, what is sort of the science on that right now? Is, is it generally safe? Well, I mean, it's always hard to sort of sum up the therapy into a, you know, a few lines, but yeah, I would say overall it's a, you know, it's, it's a very safe therapy. The risks are in a very rare and rare range. Um, and, you know, people look at risk differently. And I always tell people, you know, you have to look at everything has risk. If you take Tylenol, you risk, uh, there's a small risk of liver injury. If you drive a car, there is a risk that you are going to get into an accident, no matter how careful you are. And so, you know, when you, every time you go to the grocery store, do you assess that risk? You just do it because you have to go to the grocery store. You have to get food, right? So I think you, it's important just to explain to people that the risks are there, but they're very, very low. And overall, in, if people are in the right category, because obviously there's people who hormones are not recommended for. So for example, if you're 65, we wouldn't recommend starting it because over the age of 60, there is an increased risk of dementia and heart disease associated with starting hormones. Um, but if you're under the age of 60 or less than 10 years from your final period, and you're not at incredibly high risk of breast cancer, you know, for, for other reasons, uh, and, uh, don't have an incredibly high risk for cardiovascular disease, then hormone replacement therapy, or what we like to call now menopausal hormone therapy is really a very safe therapy, but like every therapy, if you don't need it, you shouldn't be on it. So if you're not having any symptoms, if you're doing just fine, then you don't need it. Is there a, uh, connection between, uh, people or women who have had, uh, you know, severe sort of ongoing periods and, you know, severe uh, symptoms of menopause, or is that unrelated? Yeah, I don't think it's really related. In fact, there's a lot of people who have horrible periods who find menopause so amazing because now they don't have their horrible periods, 
right? So you you have to look at your menopause experience in total. Like I had terrible, painful periods my whole life. You, you know, on the pill it was better, but um, but still really bad, painful periods, and not having to have you know awful cramps, and I had terrible menstrual diarrhea, not having to have diarrhea for two days a month. I mean, you know, there's you know, so many people find that they're liberated significantly. You know, I I encourage people to think about it like pregnancy, right? Everybody's pregnancy is different. Some people have super easy pregnancies and they have absolutely, you know, no symptoms and other people suffer from morning sickness. Some people have short labors, some people have long labors. So it's kind of like that. The, the leading into, you know, uh, sort of those per- first perimenopause, a lot of women just don't know, is it perimenopause? Is this what I'm in? Uh, and so should women get it? I know there's a test you can do that measures, you know, your hormones. I did it with my doctor. Um, Actually, I'm going to interrupt. No, you shouldn't. There isn't a test for perimenopause. And so if your doctor gave you one, your doctor was actually incorrect. Um, So that's Ah. a really important point. Yeah. Yeah. That's a sign of somebody not being up up to date. Um, So yeah, there's no tests for perimenopause, just like there's no test for puberty. Puberty is a normal phase of life you know, going through the menopause transition is a normal phase of life. So if you are 47 and getting some hot flushes and irregular periods, that's not unexpected. Just like if you're 13 and having a growth spurt and acne, it's not unexpected. Now, if you're six and having a growth spurt and acne, that's different and you need investigation. Just like if you're 32 and, you know, stopped your periods and having hot flushes. So you have to look at when that's happening in context. And in fact, if you're 45 years or older, you absolutely do not need any type of blood tests. And doctors shouldn't be checking your hormones to see where they are because one, it doesn't change anything, but two, it's unreliable. So your hormone levels during the menopause transition go up and down and up and down. So one month you can look menopausal and the next month you can ovulate. So it doesn't tell you if you're capable of getting pregnant. So um, I really encourage people um, to to not, you know, if hormone tests are being recommended to you, then you you may not be getting the best uh, advice. So basically, if you're having symptoms after 47, odds are good you're in perimenopause. Well, if you're having symptoms over the age of 40, you very well, you know, the menopause transition. So here's the thing. Just like puberty, you don't really know how long you're in puberty, right? Like, you know, was it four years? Was it six years? Like, that's what the menopause transition is like. So there isn't a hard start with it. You know, you don't really know you're in it until you're kind of in it. And so the menopause transition is when your ovaries are kind of winding down. And so at that point, you know, you may be menstrual irregularity is the number one symptom. So you're going to start having a bit of a longer time between periods. You may start occasionally missing a period. And once you start missing two periods in a row, you can almost guarantee that menopause is going to happen within about three years. Obviously, there's a little bit of variation for people. So so basically, the more chaotic your periods become, the closer you're getting to the menopause transition and to to actual menopause, which is the final menstrual period. And what would you say um, to women who have had a hysterectomy and maybe don't know um, when they're going to have their last period? Well, that's okay because, you know, the whole thing is, is it doesn't matter if you're in the menopause transition or menopause, we treat you the same. We treat you based on your symptoms. There's only two medical reasons. So this is outside of research studies. There's only two medical reasons to know the date of your last menstrual period. 
One is to know if you can get pregnant or not. So if you've had a hysterectomy, that's not, uh, you know, you don't care about that. And the other is how to figure out how to manage any irregular bleeding. So again, if you've had a hysterectomy, that doesn't matter because you're not going to have irregular bleeding. So the only reason to actually for you medically to know the date of your last menstrual period is for those two reasons. So for someone who's had a hysterectomy, are you having symptoms? Okay, we can treat them. And if you're not having symptoms, okay, you don't need to treat them. And that's really the same for all women. Let's talk about the brain for a minute, because this was, you know, I told my friends I was talking to you and a lot of them had questions about what was happening in their brain. Are we going crazy? Is this dementia, uh, depression, you know? Uh, so let's talk about the brain and sort of how menopause affects it in various ways. Yeah. So, so there's, a, so there's a couple of things. So first of all, I, I, recommend people think about sort of the cultural narrative they've been exposed to about what women in menopause are supposed to be like, right? Like you're supposed to be a doddering old lady who isn't capable of anything. So you've got to sort of make sure that you're not buying into that narrative because, you know, I mean, there are lots of kick-ass women in menopause, you know, ruling countries and, you know, discovering things and, you know, being amazing politicians and being amazing, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, family members and running households and all kinds of things. So let's talk first about depression. So menopause, the early menopause transition can sometimes trigger a mild depression for some women or worsen a pre-existing condition. But you have to remember that hormones can affect mood, right? Like some people get premenstrual syndrome, some people get postpartum depression, and some people have depression that was triggered by their puberty, right? So they develop depression, you know, during puberty that they didn't have before. So that's the same for menopause. And sometimes hormones can help that, but sometimes people need antidepressants. Now, as for, are you going crazy? Are you forgetting things? Menopause for about two thirds of women is associated with something called brain fog. And that is a, a bit of a change in cognitive function. It is not a sign of dementia and it is not progressive. It's temporary. It comes and it goes. And interestingly, it doesn't seem to be related to whether you're sleeping well or, or if you're having hot flushes, it's an independent thing. And there's brain imaging studies to show that some areas of the brain do shrink. Now, people might panic and say, oh my gosh, that means like I'm, my, I'm losing my brain. And actually it doesn't because studies also tell us that over time, other areas of the brain grow to compensate, right? So if you think about your brain, it's intimately involved with ovulation and reproduction. And once your body doesn't need to reproduce, all those pathways can be shrunk and your brain can get rid of them. Your brain can prune the areas that it doesn't need anymore and other areas then grow to compensate. So that brain fog may reflect kind of that change in the neurological platform, but it's temporary and it might feel worrying to people, but it's not medically worrisome. You talk about attitudes and mindset towards aging in the menopause manifesto. And I'm specifically, I'm thinking about cognitively and when it comes to sex and desire. So why is your attitude um, going into menopause so important? Well, I think it's important because everything that if you, if you head into menopause, going by how society wants you to head into menopause, you may as well pack it up and, you know, go sit in a rocking chair in the corner and, you know, never have any fun again, 
You know, I mean, that's absolutely unacceptable. You know, we don't see images around us of women in menopause. You know, think about the images you see of women over the age of sort of 35. They're all 75 or 80. You're either a grandma, you know, or you're young and hot. You know, there's sort of like this, you know, and obviously lots of grandmas can be hot, but I'm talking about this sort of like Hollywood, you know, the golden girls, your eye, I mean, you know, it's so ridiculous. Those women were supposed to be, Blanche Devereaux was supposed to be like 54. Look at how they dressed her, you know, like they, you know, they dressed these women who, you know, who, if you saw them at award shows, looked one way, they dressed them as if they were 80, but they were in their 50s, supposed to be in their 50s. I mean, it just, you know, so if you did what society wanted you to do, you, you know, you'd basically have one foot in the grave. So when I told my friends I was interviewing you, the response was what you might expect if I had announced I was I was interviewing a movie star. Uh, you have developed oh. an absolutely massive fan base around the globe, um, you know, sharing a agenda. And so are you, has this surprised you? Has it made you uncomfortable that fame sort of follows you everywhere you go now? Um, well, you know, I don't, I don't really think that I'm, um, I don't view myself as, you know, being famous, but you know, that's just me. Uh, you know, I think it's, uh, I, I think it's great that my message has resonated with people sort of the message of, you know, you need to advocate for yourself that help, you know, empowerment about your health can help you move forward, um, can, you know, can help you control your life and, or, not always control things, but, you know, help you navigate things and that your body shouldn't be a mystery. And, you know, I just, I just think it's great that message has resonated with people. Personally, though, for you, the flip side of, of having any sort of internet fame is that you get a lot of vitriol thrown at you. And I've seen this specifically for you in particular, uh, when you addressed uh, vaccine issues, um, how are you, how do you cope with that? The trolls and the hate thrown at you? Um, that must be difficult. I mean, I don't care how thick your skin is. It still must be difficult. Well, you know, the anti-vaccine stuff doesn't really bother me, actually. Uh, personally, it just bothers me more in the sense that people are dying and that they, you know, they have such an impact. That's, you know, that weighs on me that people with massive platforms share this, you know, junk and, um, and you know, pregnant people. People are dying like, you know, in August in the United States, 22 pregnant people died of COVID. All of those deaths, they're all unvaccinated, those unnecessary deaths, you know, and you read these stories of, you know, a mom dying, leaving her four children at home and never having, you know, held her newborn. And, you know, why was she afraid of the vaccine? Because of that, that, those awful people. So, you know, I suppose when, I think everybody who spreads anti-vaccine sort of vitriol is an awful person. And so I don't really care what awful people think of me, you know, like they're not worthy of having an opinion of me. I think that's kind of how I feel about them. You know, I think that what's harder is sometimes there's people who are just, you know, really involved with pseudoscience and, you know, they accuse you of not listening to women. They sort of co-opt the language of, of, of feminism in a very faux feminist way. Um, you know, that, you know, if you're, you're not listening to women, if you want to give them facts about their body, and it's like, well, that doesn't make sense. I mean, if you want to steam your vagina, you should be told that it's not medically indicated and could actually be harmful. You shouldn't be sold a narrative that it's going to heal you from sexual trauma. It doesn't empower women to, to lie to them. 
And so, you know, when these people who hold themselves out as sort of feminists or pro-women, you know, say nasty things about me, that's, that doesn't bother me, but it makes me really sad that, that the, that they're abusing the language of feminism or where, you know, uh, in that way. So, yeah, I mean, so, you know, the, it's just, I would say it doesn't, it more wears on me that, that we're still here. We're still fighting these sort of same battles, you know, like 10 years, 10 years into sort of the social media and the internet, you know, and it feels that, that, you know, social media is such a, a perfect place for pseudoscience to flourish because it's easy, right? You can lie to people, you know, if you're not, if you're not bound by the truth, you can say the most amazing, fantastical things. Yeah. The, the post-truth era is exhausting uh, because it's just deny, deny, deny. Right. And so we're all feeling a little worn down by that, which is why I think your message is so empowering for women. We just, we want facts. We want to know what's going on. Um, and so you're, you're arming us with knowledge and that's so valuable. Um, you're Canadian. I, I mean, I just want to make sure that everybody listening to my <laughs> show, cause I interview Canadian women, you're Canadian. Um, <laughs> And you're living in the U.S. Are you alarmed what you're seeing there? Because, I mean, you've been in the States for some time now. Um, are you alarmed by what's happening in the U.S.? Um, I'm thinking specifically of Texas right now. Um, how, are you, how are you feeling about that? And are you coming back to us soon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm from Winnipeg. I mean, for all the people who don't, who don't know, I went to medical school there too. And I did my residency in, in Ontario, Western. Ooh, Joe Cools. Oh, if you yay. went to Western, oh, you know what goodness. you Oh, we were rubbing shoulders then. We were definitely rubbing shoulders because we're the same age. And I spent a lot of time at Joe Cools. <laughs> I, I know. Isn't it so funny? Anybody, you know, if you ever meet anyone from London who went to Western and you say Joe Cools, it's like this, this, it's like a secret code. It's like, you're all in the same club. Um, the fun fact about Joe Cools, I was back in London a few years ago. And we went to Joe Cool's thinking, oh, it'll be so, so fun to see all the young kids. And everybody was our age. And they said that our generation just never left, that they just kind of claimed it. It's so <laughs> true, because every time I go to London, rarely now. Uh, and so when I go back, I go to Joe Cool's, same people who were there 30 years ago. <laughs> so yeah. It's, I, yeah, I know I missed, I haven't been, you know, I've obviously haven't been up to Canada for a couple of years because of the, you know, the border being closed and everything. And so, yeah, I, I need to go get my Joe Cools on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, back to Texas, <laughs> to Texas and everything down here. It's, you know, I was, when I moved to the States in the 19, mid 1990s, I was, you know, grossly unaware of American politics uh, and American life. You know, you think living in Canada, is just the same. And it's just different. You know, everything here has shifted much more to the right. Uh, you know, I, I always thought I was considered sort of, you know, maybe center to the right of center in Canada and I'm like super left down here. So, um, you know, I don't think I'm center right in Canada anymore either, because unfortunately, you know, things have shifted quite a bit in Canada as well. Um, so I think that, yeah, it's very worrying. And I think that people... I certainly didn't realize how organized the sort of evangelical movement was and, uh, and how much hatred, you know, there was for, you know, for women and, you know, for, for everybody who doesn't fit into this sort of, um, 
sort of narrow definition of how you should live your life, you know, whether it's, um, you know, hatred for people that are LGBTQ plus, um, hatred for people who get pregnant, hatred for people who decide to live their lives, <clears throat> pardon me, in ways that work for them and the ways they should be living their lives. So I, I hadn't realized that degree of, of hatred. Um, but, you know, also, when you're a resident, you know, you're spending five years completely immersed in working in the hospital. So I would have probably have to say that during my residency, I was probably pretty unaware of everything that was going on in Canada, too. And, and just quickly, I mean, you're, you're in California, correct? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area. So um, I'm in a very liberal part of the country. And, you know, we have had an incredible COVID response here. You know, we have incredibly high vaccination rates. Um, you know, I feel comfortable here going into a restaurant. I, I wouldn't in many places in the United States. You know, I feel very comfortable. You know, my the vaccination rates among, you know, adults are are in a sort of close to 90% range, I think now. So it's really, um, you know, it's really amazing. And it really shows that there's, you know, definitely two Americas, which by more than two, but, um, but it's just, it's amazing to me how I can live in this part of the country where, every, you know, the bulk of the population is on board with everything. And yet there's parts of the country where, you know, 30% or fewer people are vaccinated. So what is next now? You've, you've got the Vagina Bible, the Menopause Manifesto. Uh, do you have another book in the works? Yeah, yeah. I just uh, actually wrote the introduction for it yesterday. So there you go. I'm not, I don't know if I'm allowed to, to give the title out yet. You know, the publishers are weird about that stuff. They like to announce it. But um, it's, I can tell you it'll be sort of a third book in a series for the, you know, Vagina Bible, Menopause Manifesto. And I told my publisher if they don't sell it as a box set, then I don't know what's of value anymore. Oh, so many jokes. So many I jokes. I know, right? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, this is a box set about the box. Um, so yeah, there has to be, there has to be, you know, the, and I'm hoping to update the vagina Bible too, when, um, when the new book comes out. So, um, so people can have an up-to-date box set. <laughs> All right. Incredible. And I encourage, as we're closing out this, I encourage everybody to go and uh, sign up for, uh, Vagenda updates in their inbox. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. My, yeah, my, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I can come straight to your box, um, with my sub stack called the Vagenda. And, um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Gunter, for joining me. I don't want to take up any more of your time. You've been an absolute delight. Uh, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me and have a great day. Be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson right now so you never miss an episode. New podcasts drop weekly. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. 
I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.